Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 183 of the coronavirus crisis. And tonight, a hard hit state closes businesses as others delay openings. We must hit pause on the resumption of indoor dining. New Jersey, trying to get ahead of the curve, halts its move forward. None of us want to go back through that hell. We've worked too hard to get here. Further south, problems increase. Florida shuts more beaches. Experts fear Texas is losing control. Also tonight, the plan for sports. One big-time high school coach on his path forward. And... I feel proud that I'm actually the front line and helping people. Behind the counter at America's grocery stores. The CNBC special report starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And welcome. Good to have you with us on this Monday night where we begin with breaking news. A major reversal tonight from Arizona's governor shutting down bars and nightclubs, gyms and more as the virus ravages his state. New Jersey also saying no now to indoor dining. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is a CNBC contributor, the former FDA commissioner with us once again this evening. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you. This news from Arizona tonight. What do you make of it? Well, look, I think we're going to see other states start to take measures to try to um, interrupt the spread. We're seeing spread across the South. The trends today in terms of the new numbers was also concerning. Um, 36,000 new cases today. Mondays are usually days when you see less reporting. Um, A week ago this Monday, we saw 27,000 new cases. So the general trend continues. We're seeing upward trajectory in a number of new cases. And we're seeing that across states like Texas and Florida, Georgia, California, South Carolina, when you look week over week. I think what's really going to affect the epidemic at this point in the South is when people start to take more precautions. And you're starting to see that. You're starting to see reports of people being more careful about their social interactions, wearing masks when they go out. I think when you start to aggregate the collected behavior of individuals taking more precautions in their individual lives, that's going to have a big impact. The actions by the governor's will have some impact, but it's not going to really start to reverse these trends. Remember, these are um, venues that have been open for some time now. In many cases, they're not shutting venues. They're just hitting pause on continued reopenings. Um, They're closing things like bars and nightclubs and stuff like that. But for the most part, they're just not continuing to reopen businesses um, as they start to see more spread. Do we need more aggressive shutdowns? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think we're not going to get it is the bottom line. So there's no sense in calling for what um, governors aren't going to do. I don't think you're going to see them close more than just these kinds of entertainment types of venues and and sort of recreational types of activities. I don't think we're going to see a broad um, closure of businesses. I don't think we're going to see broad stay at home orders. And so what we what we need to do is galvanize the public to start taking collective action on their own to limit their activity and make them more aware of the risks of, you know, interactions, social interactions, social gatherings that aren't done in a socially distanced fashion, not wearing masks when you're in large groups, going into congregate setting indoors where the risk of spread is particularly high. Um, If we can get everyone to just take more precaution in their daily lives, that can start to reverse these trends. You've, You've also raised the issue of whether in some places it's going to be too late to contain some of these outbreaks, specifically as it relates to the state of Florida. How are you feeling about that this evening? Well, I think when you look at the trends in Florida, they're very concerning. Um, You can make an argument that Florida is in the worst shape of the states. I mean, it's a tough call because we have limited data. We saw hospitalizations go up in Miami-Dade. They separately report 
um, daily hospitalizations. So Florida is in trouble. Um, it's going to be slow to reverse these trends. Remember, in New York, we took pretty dramatic action with the stay-at-home orders and the simultaneous shutdown of really all business activity. Um, and we still saw cases continue to build for some time. In the southern states, we're taking more limited action, so there's not a dramatic step that's been taken to really reverse these trends. So if we are going to reverse these trends, it's going to be a slower reversal. We're going to see more um, cases build before we start to see a reversal here. I think over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see continued um, increase in cases, and we're going to start to see deaths tragically go up as well. And it's going to be some time before we can reverse this absent some dramatic action, which I just don't think is going to come. You're talking about a pretty harsh reality down in the state of Florida, combined with an unwillingness from the governor to shut things down. Uh, where does that leave that state? Well, I think it leaves us in a situation where we're just going to see more spread. Um, we're going to see people start to, I think, take more actions on their own to limit their activity. We're going to see businesses make decisions on their own to shut down, particularly um, national chains that have locations in Florida but also have locations in other states. I think you know a lot of those national chains are going to make decisions to close their locations in the states where there are outbreaks. We can reverse this. Um, it's not too late. It's never too late. But it's going to take time and it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be a slower process than the kinds of sharp reversals that we saw in the north, northeastern states when we you know, implemented tougher measures that were very difficult on the general population but did have the effect of more dramatically reversing the epidemics. It's going to be hard to do that now. I mean, a lot of these states in the South have been partially or entirely shut down. So to ask the businesses to re-shut down is going to put a lot of hardship on people. So I just don't see it happening. I think the difficulty is heading into the fall when we wanted to reopen business in more earnest. We wanted to send our kids back to school. Those are going to be tough decisions for a lot of these states to make. A lot of local officials, I think, are going to have a hard time reopening school districts against the backdrop of this spread. And remember, those schools open earlier in the South in many cases. And so those decisions need to be made probably in early August. So you're doubting tonight as to whether some of these districts down south are going to be able to send their kids back to school. I think it's going to be difficult. I mean, you look, especially in the outbreak areas, you look at cities like Houston, Austin, Dallas, um, the Miami-Dade uh, area. I think it's going to be difficult for school districts if you don't start to see these numbers come down sharply heading into July to make decisions in August to reopen those school districts. And that's really um, the tragic thing from the continued spread in the South. I think we were very focused on keeping businesses open, getting, getting businesses back open, the bars, the restaurants. And I understand why. I know the hardship that the shutdowns impose on small business owners. But we really needed to also focus on the longer term, trying to reopen the schools in the fall. And the backdrop of all this spread is going to make those decisions very difficult. I would expect a lot of local districts to make decisions not to open schools. They don't need to make those decisions right now, but I don't think there's going to be a lot that happens over the month of July that dramatically reverses these trends. Even if we see a slowdown in the number of new cases over the month of July, and hopefully we will, we're really not going to see a very dramatic reversal because the actions that we're taking to try to accomplish that are very gradual. They're going to they're lead to a very gradual outcome. Did Governor Murphy here in New Jersey make the right decision today to delay uh, indoor dining, Dr. Gottlieb? Well, look, we've seen evidence now that indoor dining has become a source of spread, and we know that congregate settings indoors are higher risk. We also have the benefit here in the Northeast of being able to move a lot of uh, activities outside, particularly dining activities outside, 
down in the south and the southwest and the southeast, they don't have the same bent, uh, opportunities because it's so hot down there. It's hard to dine in Houston in 95 degree heat or Phoenix in 110 degrees or Miami in 95 or 100 degrees and 100 percent humidity. So it's a little bit more difficult for them to take advantage of the same opportunities we have here in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. I think the governor made the right call given the fact that you are seeing a slight uptick in cases in New Jersey. Um, it needs to be watched. It's not really a trend yet, but it does need to be watched. But we have more evidence right now that congregate settings indoors are venues for spread, and we do have the opportunity to move those things outside. I think what local officials and governors should be doing is where those opportunities exist to move businesses outside, they should be cutting red tape to allow businesses to do that. So, you know, make the permitting process very easy for restaurants to create outdoor dining venues. Let's talk about other things that are reopening, uh, namely professional sports, at least attempting to. We're learning this evening, Dr. Gottlieb, a few uh, Major League Baseball players say they are not going to play this year. You are now informally advising the NBA. Orlando is one of the hardest hit cities in this country right now with some of the fastest number uh, numbers of cases in terms of their case growth. So what are you advising the NBA on? Well, I haven't had a discussion with them about this. I think that the sports teams, the professional sports teams, and I've said this, can create a protective bubble around the players, can control activity off the field to reduce the risk that people get infected off the field and bring it into the clubhouse. So I think there's a way to bring back professional sports, even against the backdrop of continued spread. I think it's going to be hard for the NBA to play down in Orlando if the backdrop is that there is an epidemic raging in Florida. So I think the sports teams that are playing in locations where there's a lot of spread are going to have to think about whether they continue to host games in those regions, not necessarily because the players are going to be at risk, because I think they can protect the players, but because I think there's going to be an optics problem with, you know, putting a lot of resources in to protect players in a setting where a lot of people are being made, uh, are very vulnerable and being put at risk. Interesting. Stay with me, uh, if you would, Dr. Gottlieb. I do want to pursue a sports from a different angle, the pandemic pushing high school football teams to tackle the season differently than in the past. Roger Harriet is the head coach of St. Thomas Aquinas in Fort Lauderdale. Last season, his team, the Raiders, went undefeated on their way to a state title. Coach, it's good to have you. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you guys having me on. You've heard our conversation with Dr. Gottlieb, I presume, and how you're thinking about what lies ahead for your season. How are you thinking about things tonight? Well, right now we are fixated on putting, putting together the appropriate uh, protocols and parameters. Our principal, Dr. Denise Aloma, and our administrators, along with the governing bodies of the Florida High School Athletic Association, our Broward County Athletic Association, and, you know, various help from different coaches. We're just focused on doing what we feel is in the best interest um, of our kids in the community. That's, so that's our focus right now. We want to make sure that they're following the appropriate protocols with the three W's. You know, wear your mask, watch your distance, and wash your hands. So we're doing as much education as we can and, and following from a leadership standpoint to ensure that, that they're doing what, what is expected of them right. off the field. Right I, know, I know how serious a business football is down there, particularly your high school. You've had Hall of Famers come through there, most recently the Bosa brothers for the NFL fans uh, who follow things. Do you think you're going to have a season as it stands right now? Well, as you know, football is a way of life down here in South Florida, and we're trying hard to put together the appropriate accommodations to fulfill the, the, those type of uh, requirements and, and requests. How, however, you know, we were optimistic, extremely optimistic up to the past, obviously, week and a half. We had a 
we had a, a, a tremendous increase in, in numbers with regards to the cases of, of COVID-19. So, you know, it's important from a leadership standpoint to look out for the best interest of, of the child first. Um, you know, as far as moving forward goes, we're, we're not sure at this point. July 6th was the actual start date for here for Broward County up to just recently. And I think that that will be pushed back with regards to what's what's uh, what's right in the best interest for our kids. Yeah, preseason begins July 6th, not far away. Training camp July 27th. A lot of decisions have to be made between now and then. Mm-hmm. You talked about some of the precautions that are, are being taken. Can you uh, let us in on, on what exactly uh, you're doing as a, as a program down there already? Well, we're, we're, first of all, trying to make sure that our kids and, you know, the, our community in general real, realize that this, the stigma of, of this virus isn't something they should be ashamed of. If you if you have it or if you know someone that has been um, infected by the virus and you spent a substantial amount of time with them, we're encouraging uh, them to get tested. And so we want to we want to try to put together a track and trace so it doesn't uh, continue to spread. And we want to make sure that we are taking the, the, the appropriate measures um, with regards to the, the, the protocols that, that are in place. Um, you know, obviously, if we were in a position that we could work out or start um, training, we would, we would be uh, encouraging social distancing. Um, we would be encouraging temperature checks. Our governing bodies has put together a symptom form that has that has cough, um, nausea, um, any type of symptoms that you may have, including you know uh, fever, and um, we're we're taking the appropriate uh, measures from there. If they if they have anything, then we encourage them to go home and um, get seen by a, a doctor, and then do the track and trace from from that standpoint. You know, we we, we truly believe that adversity is, you know, breeds opportunities for us to make make some um, difficult choices and decisions from a leadership standpoint where we where that has been a struggle, obviously, um, so far with, with within our within our community and, uh, and within our climate. But we're doing all the things necessary to, to, to ensure that we're not compromising the health and well-being of our student athletes uh, moving forward. So we're trying to encourage them to take care of themselves and and not infect their their families as well. So, even though the young the, our our young populations uh, seems to think that this is a virus that they can deal with, they're not taking into consideration that they are going to track this back home to their family members and may put them in a difficult situ- situation with regards to their health. So, a lot of education is going on right now. We're doing our best to in, in, ensure their their well being without compromising the integrity of uh, what, you know, our position from a leadership standpoint. You, you mentioned football's a way of life down there. Uh, clearly understand mm-hmm. that. What are you hearing from parents on that note? Do they want you to pursue the season or are they starting to get a little more cautious? Have you had many conversations with them? Yeah, we have. I think people are starting to feel, obviously, you know, cabin fever. They're getting a little antsy. We're, we're, ex- we're experiencing a seismic shift in so many different arenas here obviously the you know the health and medical industry and um you know socialization with regards to the you know race relations right now in our country so we're trying to educate um in so many different ways and as you know athletics is an integral part of our society and it brings forth um you know good goodwill and and gestures and uh not having it right now 
is uh, is, is starting to become somewhat of a, a difficult um, experience. But like I said, we're we're extremely optimistic. We feel like it's important for us to continue to uh, raise our our level of expectations when it comes to the, the health and well being of of our our children, and um, hopefully they have been receptive to some of the protocols out there and, and the advisories that our media has been um, doing a good job of, of uh, pu pu pushing forward. But we still have some leadership issues that, you know, obviously is established, you know, established some convoluted type of messages that is, is, has created a, a bit of confusion. But I really believe that we're a sophisticated enough society to pull ourselves together, especially when we're in a world of hurt right now. And um, there needs to be some more focus on the healing aspect of what needs to transpire moving forward in every in every component of of society. So, although we're going through some difficult times, I, I I see better days ahead for 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 us moving forward as a whole from a global standpoint. We'll make that the last word, Coach. Appreciate your time tonight. Wish you well. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having Roger me. Harry again. He's the head football coach, St. Thomas Aquinas High School down in Fort Lauderdale. We turn back now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb, you could hear the concern in the coach's voice. What would you recommend tonight in hotbeds like Florida when it comes to football? Well, he was a good analysis of the challenges we face. Now, just sort of, I just want to accentuate one point he made, which was very good, which is that we've, um, we're at risk of stigmatizing what it means to have COVID and uh, disincentivizing people from coming forward. I think that I've seen um, personally People become angry when they find out that someone with COVID disease was in their proximity and might have infected them. And what's happening is we're discouraging people from self-identifying if they think they might have symptoms of mild COVID disease and go and get tested and let other people know that they might have been in proximity to them. And we need to we need to address that. And businesses can work on that as well. Try to inspire people to come forward as an act of, of civic virtue um, to help other people go get tested if they might have been in contact with you if you, in fact, had COVID disease. So we need to be careful that we don't stigmatize this infection. I think it's going to be challenging for high school sports to restart. Um, you know, all the resources that are available to professional teams aren't available to college and high school teams. And so I think that they're going to face bigger challenges restarting games come this fall because sports is something that put people in close proximity to each other. Um, they're, they're risky environments. And in the setting of spread in these in these locations in Florida and Texas and other parts of the South and even in the Northeast, this virus is going to come back in the Northeast. The priority is going to be on trying to keep classes open. And so I would expect a lot of local school districts to close um, extracurricular activities because they're not going to want to create additional risks that could put at risk keeping the classrooms open. Well, a question about the toolbox, that, as you've coined it, uh, ways that we'll deal with the virus. Um, a big story today, remdesivir from Gilead, a price tag put on it, $2,300 for, for a cycle. But you tweet tonight that a bigger story, perhaps, is the supply of remdesivir and how, in your words, it's going to be severely constrained and that maybe we should have handled this a little bit differently. Well, the company has enough supply on hand to treat the labeled indications, so the indication that they're approved for, which are patients that are more sick, um, at current levels. So if the epidemic doesn't become much worse from where it is right now. But we're probably going to need more supply of this drug heading, heading into the fall. And there's studies underway looking at using this drug in a less severe population, patients who don't have a serious COVID disease. And I think it could be beneficial in that setting. Like a lot of anti other antivirals, if you introduce an antiviral drug earlier in the course 
of a virus, oftentimes you get a better result. We've seen that with other drugs, particularly for treatment of the flu. And so you can have an expectation that perhaps remdesivir would be more effective if you use it earlier in the course of COVID as well. We might not have the supplies to do that. In fact, we probably won't as the infection expands going into the fall. So I think we should have focused more on trying to expand supply two, three months ago when we knew this was a promising drug. Let's get to a tweet, if we could, before I let you go tonight. Do we see or expect to see any mutation in the virus that makes it less lethal in the near term, knowing that all living things live to reproduce and not kill its host? Well, look, this virus is mutating all the time, and it's possible that you'll have some mutations that are less lethal. But it's not just a fact of having a mutation that's less lethal. That mutation needs to become the predominant strain. So it needs to have a competitive advantage over the currently um, circulating COVID. And that competitive advantage would be that it would be more contagious. It's going to be hard to come up with a COVID that's more contagious than the current one because the current one is quite contagious. Let me ask you one more quick one, if I could. Data showing an increase in all age groups cross-country. Deaths are down across the board. Great news. Is that because of better treatment, fewer retirement residents outbreaks? From prior research, we should have expected deaths to increase by now. Is there a disconnect? Well, I'm not sure we should have expected it to increase yet. Um, time to death is, you know, three weeks, four weeks. And so we're going to start to see deaths tick up as a result of the current surge in infections. The death rate's definitely going down as a result of better treatment, but total deaths are probably going to start to increase again because of the increased, in infe- increased number of infections. Earlier today, I think you said half the population by the end of the year is going to get this uh, virus. That's a lot of people, 150 million, uh, if you're doing the count, if not, if, uh, if if, not more. Well, about 25, probably, 25 million have probably had it already in the United States, probably 7% of the population. And if we continue on the current trajectory, the doubling time is every, every 40 days right now. So if we don't get this under better control, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have a lot of people infected with this by the end of the year. That's a scary number. Dr. Gottlieb, we'll talk to you tomorrow, and I appreciate your time. As always, that's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us. As we told you earlier, New Jersey postponing its plans to resume indoor dining this week. And New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, reconsidering whether to move forward with indoor dining in New York as well. One of the issues we're working on in New York City uh, Indoor dining has shown that it has been problematic, uh, that a virus spreads in closed indoor areas that have air-conditioned systems. Chef Daniel Balud back with us tonight. He just reopened his first of his seven New York City restaurants this weekend for outdoor dining. Chef, it's good to see you again. Good to see you, Scott. A lot to get to, but for first, tell me how things went this weekend. I'm sure it must have been a, a, a great feeling to get a restaurant reopened in New York City. Absolutely, and it was a great feeling to see our friends, our customer, our, our local customer around Barbulu on the Upper West Side, and, and just to feel, to start to feel energy back from our staff and our suppliers are happy, of course. I think it's, it's the old chain of of uh, support that is back on, but it's a it's a small start, but it's a good start. And I think the city of New York have been fantastic with sidewalk cafe permission to give the chance to every restaurateur to be able to at least do business outside outdoor. Did you have a lot of patrons? Yes, very much, of course, and uh, a real pleasure to see them. And we have seen that also in Palm Beach. Uh, we have been up and there for quite a while already. 
and we had a lot of, of our patron there who was, uh, you know, doing. But uh, in New York, uh, we are opening also our retail store, Epicery Bulu, next week. So we took a week to open both, and it's next to Barbouli on the Upper West Side. So the two together, uh, it'll be good for the corner there on 64 and Broadway. The, um, we don't have Lincoln Center, of course, but at least there is good business. And we're trying to be careful with the schedule of operations, how many days we operate right now, but I think it's a beginning. What, what's your, your feeling, your, your point of view when you hear New York's governor have some caution about the idea of opening uh, indoors now, as New York, uh, New Jersey's governor says they're going to delay. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think we the order of the governor will be what we will listen to and really ab- obliged to. But at the same time, uh, we have to be very cautious. We, you know, I think working outdoor kind of feel better right now, and uh, we are not. Uh, we we will wait until we can open indoor and feel comfortable as well. Uh, we are doing still a lot of uh, to go with Daniel Buri Kitchen. A lot of people still order at home. Uh, but, um, you know, we want to be inviting people in our restaurants. That's our goal. But it's, it is challenging. How about Palm Beach? I'm just wondering your thoughts. If you, you have a restaurant that's open there, you say it's been open for some time now. And we are well, seeing a uh, huge growth in cases down in the state of Florida. Well, they just, I think, established a curfew in Palm Beach so the young kids don't go out or the younger people don't go out. We have mostly outdoor in Palm Beach. Uh, it, we have a very big garden, so we scatter that all over the garden. So it worked very well. But not every restaurant has this possibility, of course. And I'm lastly wondering, what, if anything, have you, have you learned through this, this whole crisis, Danielle, about being a restaurateur, about the industry itself, and how that shapes your view of what the other side is going to look like? Well, I mean, we don't know how the other side's going to look like, but we have definitely feared for our staff, for our, uh, for our families, for the certainly for the, the suppliers as well. It has been very hard, and uh, we have been trying. I mean, we all, every chef is doing a Zoom class, uh, cooking class, is trying to promote the ingredient of farmers, the ingredient of fishermen's and uh but uh you know we have learned that um we can still be away from each other and be very efficient in terms of meetings and building something for the future but our business we have to be together it's not like you work in a bank where everyone can be scattered around and still get the job done i think our business at the end is to bring back the staff and to be able to perform I mean, it's just like Broadway. It's just like any other performance. Yeah, you've you've helped us along the way understand what this whole crisis has been like for your industry. We appreciate checking in with you once again, and I'm sure we will again. Look forward to seeing you soon, Danielle. Thank you very much, Scott. All right. That's Chef Danielle Balud joining us once again tonight. Now to the airlines issuing new safety guidelines tonight. Our Phil LeBeau has that breaking story for us. Phil? Scott, the airlines are basically getting all together under the umbrella organization Airlines for America, and they're going to be working with the TSA, basically telling all passengers that they're going to need to fill out a health assessment form. This is a form that you will fill out before you go through airport security and get on board. You will assert that, uh, hey, I am free of the virus. I have not been sick. 
Uh, I am agreeing to wear a mask if I'm going to come into the airport, go through security, get on board, and that I am not going to be fighting the uh, rules that have been established there. The airlines are hoping to convince the public, look, it is safe to fly, and we are serious when we say everyone will be wearing a mask. How serious? Today, United CEO Scott Kirby out with a video talking about the fact that the airline is requiring it. Here's the video. If you refuse to wear a mask, we're just not going to allow you to travel on United until the pandemic is over. And it really is about protecting others and protecting their safety. And we're serious about this. You just got to do the right thing. Take a look at what's going happening right now in terms of airline travel. And you were noticing that the line is not really shooting up in the V that the uh, Trump administration was hoping for when they extended the airline's aid. What we're seeing, Scott, is weekend after weekend, the number is, is shrinking a bit in terms of the growth. It was going by 27% four weeks ago. Then it was down to 21%, down to 12%. And just this last weekend, the increase in traffic in terms of the number of passengers, just 7%. So it is increasing, but it is certainly not skyrocketing higher. It is a smaller increase than many people in the industry were expecting. Obviously, Phil, that we're talking about these new outbreaks in very popular travel destinations throughout the state of Florida and then hub cities throughout the state of Texas. Correct. And this brings up the question, are people going to want to book a trip? I was talking with an airline executive today who said, go on kayak, go on any of the websites where their airfares are listed. You'll see that the number of people searching for those airfares is dropping. And that's a reflection of people saying, do I want to take a trip to an area that's a hot spot right now? Phil, appreciate it very much. Busy start to our show. We'll see you all day tomorrow. Here's what's coming up next on our special report. Next tonight, what hotels are doing for leisure and business travelers hitting the road. Plus, the man who said American employment was coming back well before last month's big jobs report jump. See what he's saying now, next. First, our country, on Monday night, June 29th, 2020. Welcome back on day 183 of the crisis. Some headlines on the virus for you tonight. The World Health Organization is sending a team to China next week to investigate how the virus began. The Treasury Department says taxpayers who can't make the July 15th deadline can seek an automatic extension to October 15th. Pending home sales, which measure signed contracts jumping 44 percent last month, that was the most on record. And Broadway theaters will remain closed for at least the rest of this year. As economies around the world reopen, hotels are scrambling to ensure safety standards. Let's bring in Mark Vondrasek now. He's the chief commercial officer for the Hyatt chain. Mark, welcome. It's good to talk to you tonight. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. How many of your properties around the world are reopened right now? 
About 80% of our properties are open today, and of the 20% um, that are closed, several of those are coming back online over the next 60 days or so. Wow, 80%. That's a pretty good number. Um, and what sort of uptick in business, if, if any, are you seeing? What's demand look like? Well, I mean, um, you know, if you look at um, the last several weeks, we've seen really good week over week um, improvement from an occupancy standpoint. Our hotel occupancy in the U.S. has doubled since the May time frame. And then if you look around the world in China, our hotel occupancy is at about 50 percent, which you know may not sound great, but that was single digits back in February. So, again, it's slow but steady progress on the occupancy side. Can you give me an idea of, of what markets in the U.S. are, are, are maybe seeing the most demand at, at this point? Yeah, uh, really the, the leisure transient markets, so the drive-to markets, the resort markets, those have, those have been the first to come back. Um, you know, over Memorial Day, for example, in the U.S., we were at about 50% occupancy, and most of that was in our key leisure and resort markets as you would expect. And then business transient is, is right behind that. And, you know, and then of course the big group meeting segment, um, that, that segment will trail as, as the recovery continues. Are you booking to hundred percent capacity in your properties or have you reduced that uh, for obvious reasons due to the crisis? Our occupancies um, haven't been anywhere near, um, you know, the hotels have not been anywhere near filled um, so we really haven't had that challenge on a uh, on a daily or weekly basis. So there's no capacity controls in place today. We're getting about 50% of our bookings, 50% uh, of last year's bookings on a weekly basis now for the coming months um, uh, and even into next year. So we're at about half of our booking capacity as we were a year ago at the same time last year. W will there be capacity controls, though, moving forward at some point? Uh, if we needed if we need capacity controls in the hotels to make sure that we can socially distance, um, of, of course, of course, we will. What is it going to look like when I walk in the doors? Yeah, I mean, we've 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 actually taken a uh, uh, we've created a really great initiative around this. We call it the global care and cleanliness commitment. And so um, and what's cool about this for us is that we didn't do it by ourselves. It's a holistic initiative. And both in the fact that we did this work in partnership with experts like the Cleveland Clinic, for example. So we went to the Cleveland Clinic, um, asked them to be part of this effort for us and advise us on our protocols to make sure that from check-in to socially distanced, um, you know, plexiglass between us to masks to um, elevator capacity, um, just making sure that the protocols as people came back to travel made a lot of sense. We've also partnered with um, organizations like Gensler. That's an architecture design firm, but they help us think about distancing in creative ways. Uh, and then American Airlines, you know, because um, uh, enterprise rental car. So this effort is really a, a holistic look at travel, both with experts in the health field, but also partners in travel as well as we think about coming back to our properties. We want people to be safe. We want it to be a great experience, but more than anything else, we want to meet them at their comfort level with where they are as it relates to confidence to come back to the hotels. Interesting to hear your story. We'll appre we appreciate your time. Mark, thank you. Appreciate it. That's Mark Vondrasek tonight from Hyatt. There is a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. This man has an index that was way ahead of last month's blockbuster jobs report. He's back tonight ahead of Thursday's jobs report to show us where this country really stands on bringing the American worker back to work. And I feel proud.
proud that I'm actually the front line and helping people. Behind the lines at the grocery store. What workers are really facing. Coming up. Welcome back. Thursday, the Department of Labor releases the June jobs report. We're getting ahead of it now with Evan Sohn, who runs Recruiting.com. He's also the man behind the world-famous Sohn Investment Conference. Evan, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us back. Well, you gave us a hint last time that things were likely to be pretty good on the jobs report. We had a blowout number, uh, clearly. What, what do we expect now this week? Uh, so this is the third installment uh, of the Recruiter Index Survey. And we're seeing uh, significant improvements uh, since our first uh, release in April. Uh, top line numbers, the average recruiter in the June index is working on 20 open roles compared to 12 in April and 15 in May. So we're certainly seeing an uptick in the number of uh, jobs that these recruiters are actually filling. Wow. So, uh, in- so the, average, the average recruiter is looking to fill 20 positions as we speak. Th- that's correct. That's correct. In May, 23.8% felt the job market was improving, and that number is now 35%. Uh, so this is really across the, sur- uh, the recruiters in our network that we've surveyed. And for the first time in the index, a majority of the recruiters, 51.4%, believe that their job requirements are going to increase in the next 30 days as compared to 42.8% in May. And 68% actually feel the job requirements are going to increase in the next 90 days. Well, that's great to hear. What kind of jobs are we talking about? Uh, so we're seeing uh, healthcare, 61 percent uh, demand are increasing, construction, 75 uh, percent. Uh, two new sectors uh, in this uh, this month's survey uh, in the Recruiter.com index, uh, aviation and aerospace, uh, which barely registered in last month's. We're now seeing about uh, 71 and a half percent seeing demand in the next 30 days and education, 75 uh, percent increase in the next uh, 30 days. Any of the trends jump out at you uh, as a surprise? I mean, you say aviation. We all know what's happening in the the aviation industry a- as we speak. I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that. Yeah, likewise. So that was pretty surprised. I think one of the other things that we that was a little bit jumping out for me uh, was that in May, in the May survey, uh, there was a, a much greater percentage, around 16 percent, felt that COVID really had a great impact on their recruiting, uh, their recruiting numbers themselves. And now in the June index, 42.8 percent, uh, sorry, it was 42.8 percent in May said that COVID-19 had a great effect on their recruiting, and now that number is down to 16.3%. So I think we're seeing the job market open up, and certainly the jobs that need recruiters are really beginning to open up, and roles that might have been put on hold uh, back in April and May are now beginning to open up again. Is there a distinction between whether these searches are for permanent positions or just temporary work, that these could be longer lasting, uh, hopefully? Uh, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly hope. Uh, we're not discerning between uh, full-time or a gig economy, 1099. We, we do believe that uh, employers will be hiring these roles back. Some of the roles might be temp to perm, some might be perm, uh, but there's certainly lots of roles that need to get filled. Appreciate you checking in with us. We'll see what happens on Thursday. Evan Sohn, talk to you soon. Thanks again, Scott. All right, you bet. Here's what's coming up next. Grocery stores from the other side of the checkout counter and supply lines. See what stress they're dealing with when we come right back. First, our world on the 183rd day of this global pandemic.
Let's look at some of the big stock winners today. And despite the surge in cases around the country of coronavirus, stocks rally today, thanks in part to news that certification flights have begun again for Boeing's 737 MAX. The Dow rising some 580 points, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ each up more than 1% on the day. Boeing, on that news, led the way on the Dow with a more than 14% gain on the day. Let's get an early look now at how tomorrow is shaping up as June comes to a close, winding down the first half of the year. Futures looking green across the board, at least right now. Well, one of the enduring themes of this crisis has been a fear that we'll run out of food. While that hasn't materialized, many grocery stores have reported shortages from meat to household cleaners. Tomorrow night at 10 Eastern and Pacific, CNBC presents Supermarket Shock, a look at the workers on the front lines. You got to go in with a positive mind and not go in negative because you don't want anything to happen. My mother always told me you can't let bad affect bad. You got to let good affect good. My name is Justina Celestin. I work at PSK Food Town, and I've been working there for almost three years. I usually work 30 hours a week. I feel proud that I'm actually the front line and helping people. I wouldn't call myself a hero, I'm just helping. I wouldn't say I was calling myself a hero. Good morning, Justina. Yeah. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. My name is Noah Katz. I'm the co-president and chief operating officer of PSK Supermarkets, Food Town. We were lucky enough to be on a conference call where the supermarket operators in China, particularly IGA, they were sharing with us everything that was happening. And so we were taking notes, you know, with everything that was going on, what buying masks, plexiglass around the cashiers. What do you have to do to keep your workers as safe as possible? medical assistant so she's also a frontline worker so it's like both of us but it's like they know that we're safe they know that we got the safety and sanitation accessories that we need at work here you go thank Thanks. you and You're have welcome. a wonderful day our full documentary, Supermarket Shock, Crisis in America's Food Supply, premieres tomorrow evening at 10 Eastern and Pacific right here on CNBC. Tonight's headlines and restaurants operating through the crisis are next. Welcome back. Time for our nightly shout out. The five restaurants operating in the face of this crisis. The Linger Lodge restaurant in Bradenton, Florida. Adrian's Custard and Beef in Grand Isle, New York. Belly Sliders and Wings in L.A. The Vogue Cafe in Jersey City, New Jersey. And the Nexus Brewery and Smokehouse in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and the town of your favorite restaurant. Send us a picture as well. May just get it on TV. On day 183 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Officials closing L.A. County beaches, piers, and bike paths for the July 4th weekend. Also, Arizona closing bars, nightclubs, gyms, movie theaters, and water parks for at least 30 days. New Jersey, 
not allowing indoor dining this week as planned due to increasing cases of the coronavirus in other states. And two Washington Nationals and one player from the Arizona Diamondbacks have now opted out of the upcoming baseball season. They are the first major league players to do just that. You can go to CNBC.com all night long for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and the virus. We are back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange, of course, 7 p.m. for Markets in Turmoil. I will see you as well, as always, on the Halftime Report at noon Eastern. For all of us here at CNBC tonight, I'm Scott Wapner. Be well and stay safe. Shark Tank is coming up next.